0: Good morning. How appropriate for us to sing about God's promises, specifically to the Israelites. Your plans are still to prosper. Uh, You have not forgotten us. Indeed, he is sovereign over all of us. Amen? Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 9, and we will begin there in a few minutes. Romans chapter 9. The date was June 27th, 1976, when a group of Arab and German terrorists had hijacked Air France Flight 139, traveling from Tel Aviv to Paris. The plane is then diverted to Uganda because the terrorists were demanding the release of uh, 53 freedom fighters by Israel in return for the safe release of 253 passengers. And Israel faced an impossible choice here, either give in to the pressure of terrorism or they risk a rescue with a very high chance of failure. And this had just happened after the massacre of 11 uh, Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. Well, if you know anything about Israel, then you know, you know that words like quit and give in and surrender are simply not in their vocabulary. Uh, what became known as Operation Thunderbolt was a rescue that would astonish the world, all in light of facing some of the most committed and evil opponents. And you know what? Little has changed for present Israel today. Rocket launches, terroristic threats, attacks of mass brutality, over 300 miles, 300 miles of underground tunnels in the Gaza Strip alone, which is only 25 miles long. Hidden weapons placed under hospitals, uh, children and their Barbie dream house toys used as human shields. And even worse, if there's really such a thing. Israel's been engaged in multiple wars with every single neighbor at one point or another in time. Since the Old Testament days of the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the uh, Moabites, the Edomites, persecution has become a way of life for the nation of Israel. And honestly, I don't know which is worse. The fact that thousands of Hamas terrorists stormed the nation of Israel by uh, land, sea, and air with the express purpose of murder, rape, torture, abduction... Or the fact that weeks later, now, there are many in the world that are standing in support of these evil and these demonic forces, even standing together for protests against Israel. And they're doing so at the moment of our greatest grief. Last Sunday, I shared with you a quote from Elie Wiesel, Never to be silent. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And some of you, uh, three or four of you, only three or four of you, uh, unless you were kind and didn't note this, that I had said she, when I said she was right, and it's he, my apologies, he was right, we can never be silent. And last Sunday, we uh, looked at past and present Israel, and we were able to surmise that the threat of genocide for the Jews, it has is, it is really always been in the rear and side view mirrors for Israel. And we looked at a number of of the promises, unconditional promises made to God's chosen people by God, uh, most notably in chapter 12 of the first book of the Bible. And we saw that God chose Abram, now uh, 4,000 years ago, to become the father of a great nation with land, seed, and blessings, promises known as the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember verse 3? chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. God has repeatedly demonstrated that those who choose to persecute the Jews will ultimately experience devastation. And it's a reminder, once again, that God keeps his promises. While Israel, humanly speaking, Uh, Fights for its survival in in the time of the Gentiles. We as believers, we know that God is not done with them. God is not done with Israel. And that really is our starting place with present Israel. We'll look at present and future Israel today. And we recognize that within the universal body of Christ, there have been some varying viewpoints concerning Israel's future. Specifically, number one here, the theology involving Israel, the theology involving Israel. And last Sunday, I had uh, warned that when it comes to our understanding of progressive revelation, of God's plans, past, present, and end times, if we don't get Israel right, we risk getting it all wrong, right? We risk getting it all wrong. We live in an age when you can uh, pick up your phone Uh, You can press an app, you can play any and every podcast in the digital universe, but I would caution you, beware of self-appointed teachers. Much discernment is needed in navigating these uh, shiny new feeds that we see on our phones. You will be skating on thin ice, taking in the teachings of those that are untrained and not ordained by the church. Something that seems to be making its way into a number of feeds is a dangerous and yet somewhat popular theology that's involving Israel that you need to be especially on guard with, especially on guard with. And it's called replacement theology, replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church has replaced Israel in God's program, that the church is now the true Israel. And so the promises originally made to Israel are now uh, transferred or absorbed by the church. God has supposedly superseded his relationship with Israel due to their rebellion and rejection, and his relationship is now with the church in this age to come. And replacement theologians know that this word is a dirty word, replacement. They know it. So they've changed, some of them have changed the title, the term here, and call it fulfillment theology, fulfillment theology, or some other title that's more positive. But the fact that what was promised to one people group, Israel, is now being declared the possession of another group to the exclusion of Israel says to me that the, um, the title, replacement theology, it's appropriate. And I, I bump into replacement theologians in the Reformed camp. I do. That is where you will find many. And the reason that this is the case is often these brothers and sisters have a, a practice in their theology of reinterpreting the Old Testament with the New. Reinterpreting the Old Testament with the New. And again, this is dangerous where allegorical or spiritualizing key texts are like common interpretation tools for them instead of using a, a literal and a grammatical approach to the Scriptures. And while this is not a, a, a message on uh, replacement theology, I do want to say to you that bad theology begets bad attitudes and actions. Bad theology begets bad attitudes and actions. Replacement theology is it's stating that the church is now essentially the chosen people of God. And there is, guys, there's no way we can co-sign that. We can't. Rejecting Israel limits the love of God. Plain and simple. I mean, it limits the, the purpose of God. Israel, through the ultimate Israelite Jesus Christ, is the means for worldwide blessings. It's God's purpose for Israel itself, is to, to really glorify Himself by bringing blessings to, to all other people groups. Now under the banner of last days or simply uh, all events that still need to happen, we have what is known as end times theology, end times theology. This is also called eschatology, eschatos meaning last or, or end, and some quick definitions are needed at this point. Now, this is not going to be a deep dive. This is more like a, um, a Costco sample, if you know what that's like. Uh, But it will be enough for you to see that there is a close relationship between what is the millennium and Israel. And the Bible teaches a millennial kingdom. This is a thousand-year reign of Christ after his second coming and before the eternal state where we have a new heavens and a new earth. And this is known as premillennialism, premillennialism. Pre means before and indicates that Jesus is going to come again before that thousand year reign, before that millennium. Now, there are also uh, ah-millennials, ah-millennials who do not believe in a literal kingdom, ah meaning no. There are, uh, and it's growing sadly, post-millennials who believe the world will continue to improve to some point. By the way, I look and I don't see that at all, but the world is going to improve Uh, to the point that the gospel will triumph over all areas of society, ushering in Christ's return. So post or after the world is Christianized. And if you are looking for more detail on these, let me just encourage you, you can look up my sermon entitled Land of the Lord, Christ's Future Earthly Kingdom. Uh, That is where I get extensive on these views, and that was March of 2022. But when it comes to the, the doctrine of last things, I want to say that I prefer, and we should prefer to call ourselves futuristic pre Futuristic pre-millennialists. And, and I do so because I believe it's the proper biblical interpretation of where Israel is today and where they are headed in the days to come. I am a futuristic pre-millennialist. Okay, so this brings us to number two, and that is the distinctions with Israel. The distinctions with Israel, we're still under the heading here of present Israel, and this deals with the New Testament references to Israel in the church age in the present. I believe the word Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament, and I don't believe ever, ever that it refers to the church. The distinctions with Israel in which people have tried to twist them into meaning the New Testament is now referring to the church when it says Israel is simply unnecessary. And there is great continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. And again, Israel and Israel's land are not uh, shadows. They're not some form of uh, types that can become insignificant once Jesus arrives. Yet, the arguments still exist. And there really are two places where people say that the New Testament refers to the church instead of Israel. Uh, the first is Romans 9.6, and the second is Galatians 16. Romans 9.6 uses the concepts or the words true Israel, and Galatians 6.16, Israel of God. And the arguments are essentially the same. But in the interest of time, we're just going to look here at nine six. So if you'd look with me at Romans 9.6 which reads, it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Paul is stating here that there is a true Israel within Israel for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel entrance into the, a uh, millennial kingdom is not simply based upon ethnicity. In fact, Leon read for us uh, just that in Ezekiel 36 where it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So we have regeneration. We have repentance here being the prerequisite for the kingdom. And all the descendants of Israel are not the truest Israel, not the uh, millennial Israel. <laughs> That's the proper distinction among distinctions here. As we said last Sunday, there are ethnic Jews. And then within that people group, there are believing Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews, Jewish believers who in that time will experience all of the unconditional covenants that God has promised, including the new covenant in the future. And more on that in a moment. Yes, present Israel is protected. We want to say that in a measure they're protected. Protected. They are being safeguarded as a people until the future day of their salvation, which then, that's when they will be the true Israel. I want you to look at this here for a moment. You look at this map. Isn't it uncanny how Israel's population is quite similar to New Jersey and, and landmass? Both have population counts just over 9 million and both encompass over 8,000 square miles. And that is the population density of about 1,000 people per square mile. The Gaza Strip alone has 14,000 people per square mile. And the Gaza Strip's 139 square miles. And it's this very small group of people, no, not New Jersey, but Israel, that have been the target of killers for generations. And you know what? The Jews just won't go away. We won't be rubbed away. Why? Why? because the presence of Jews among the nations validates the Bible, because it's through them that God will produce the remnant of Israel. Number three, the remnant of Israel. We're so close to examining the, the future of Israel. Stick with me here. Turn back to Romans chapter one, Romans one. This morning, we are going to be in Romans and Revelation, those two books, Romans and revelation, and so it's Romans chapter 1. And while you're turning there, here's a warning. When you stand before the Jewish Messiah, you had better be very careful how you had treated his chosen people. Just saying. God has a purpose, a plan, even a, a priority when it comes to his chosen people. And look at Romans 1.16. Many of you know this verse. one sixteen: For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first or especially, and also to the Greek. This is a a both and, not an either or. Jews first and to the Gentiles. And then Paul shows us how to apply this truth. Go back to to Romans chapter 9 here. Romans 9 verse 2. 9-2 reads, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Look at Paul's broken heart and and love for Israel. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. He loves Israel. Paul loves Israel. Turn over to 10.1. Paul then says, brethren, brethren, my, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation that they may be saved so paul prayed for the future salvation of the jews and then in 11:11 11, 11, end of verse 11 there in chapter 11 it says salvation has come to the jews i'm sorry to the gentiles why to make them jealous to make jewish people jealous about the good news And believe by faith that there is a remnant that is going to come through them, through Israel. So this temporary setting aside of Israel is bringing Gentile blessings. All the while it should be producing a form of Jewish jealousy, provoking Jewish salvation. And we see this just a little bit further down in this chapter, beginning in verse 17, which is concerning the olive tree. Actually, let's begin at the end of verse 16 here. If the root is holy and the branches are too, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, did you know that you can give life to an old olive tree when it ceased to bear fruit? Did you know that? I didn't. In fact, there are still trees in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the Mount of Olives still bearing fruit to one degree or another that were there when Jesus was alive. At least that's what some say. And those trees, point being, can live a very long time. And here's why. Because sometimes when they got very old, they weren't as productive. And so they would cut off the unproductive branches. And in the process of grafting and and graft in a shoot from a wild olive tree, that would be much more productive. And then the strength of those old roots, when you mingle them with the the strength of the new life of that branch that's there, it creates a, a new kind of yield, a new kind of harvest. And that analogy, the analogy is a beautiful picture of what we are studying here. Patriarchs are the root. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I mean, even Joseph. The trunk is the trunk of blessing, the trunk of a special relationship to the living God. And the branches are Israel, the chosen people of God. And now Israel was the original set of branches on the trunk of blessing, the trunk of covenant (laughs) blessing. But Israel in unbelief became unproductive. And so God came along and he cut some of the branches off, right? and grafted in, who is grafted in? Right, the Gentiles, the Gentiles. And he says here in verse 17, some of the branches were broken off. Not all of them. Why? Because there's always been a what? A remnant, a remnant of Israel. And not all of the branches were at any time broken off. Some of them remained. The Gentiles have come to be a people, a blessing. They are the the spiritual children of Abraham. They have entered into the blessing of Abraham because of being grafted into the olive tree and the unconditional covenant blessings that we looked at last Sunday, they flow through Abraham and now also flow to the Gentiles as it were because of this grafting, because of this grafting. And so it is wise for us to know the theology involving Israel, both good and bad, Uh, the distinctions uh, with Israel, the church is not the true Israel, the Israel of God, and because there is the remnant of Israel whereby the Gentiles have been grafted in alongside Jewish believers connected to the root of the patriarchs, which brings us now to future Israel from past to present, to future Israel, what does God's word tell us about the next events concerning Israel? I mean, if you were to attempt to summarize into three or four points the future for Israel, what would they be? That is exactly what I hope to do briefly in our time remaining. If you'd please turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one. And I, I want to give you three specific Israel-related events that are promised, that are prophesied to occur in the last days. But before I do, let me just say that the next event on God's calendars, you've heard us here at Grace Life preach and teach on this before, is known as the rapture. The rapture. And the rapture of the church is a singular uh, unsigned event. In other words, there is no sign prior to the event. While this doesn't really concern Israel, it's important for you to understand that at the rapture, Christ will meet his saints in the air and he's going to take them to heaven. John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. It will be suddenly, it will be in a moment, it will be in the twinkling of an eye, snatching out the church, which will include Messianic Jews because they're part of the church, right? Those who come to Christ since his ministry on earth in essence constitute his church and the rapture is going to take them out and this event can occur at any moment when the church is full and the last elect person of the age believes the rapture itself is triggered and all the redeemed will be removed it could happen now you know it could happen in 2000 years honestly We don't know. Only God knows that timing. Now, if you're in the book of Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 19. Verse 19. It is here that we see the book of Revelation is laid out chronologically. And I think this is good because this is where a lot of confusion happens as it relates to end times. We don't see the order of the book of Revelation and we get things mixed up here. In verse 19, you see it says, The things which you have seen that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, and the things which will take place after, that's the future. So to sum it up here, because we've got a lot to cover, the, the church appears in Revelation 1 on earth. In chapters 2 and 3 on earth, as those seven churches in Asia minor that are described. And then starting in chapter 4, the church never appears again until the return of Christ in chapter 19 and the millennial kingdom in chapter 20. So the church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters and never again until chapter 19. Look at 310. Look at chapter 3 verse 10. It reads, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, and he's talking to the church here, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He's talking about what I believe is the tribulation time, a time in which the world will be tested like it's never been tested, including Israel. So we have the rapture of the church Followed by Israel's persecution during Satan's campaign. Which falls in the end times period known as the tribulation. The tribulation. The Bible reveals more about the coming tribulation than really any other prophetic event to come. And this future period itself begins when the Antichrist signs a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel. That's in Daniel. Daniel 9 actually. And the agreement is made to guarantee the security of Israel for seven years. Seven years. That's the length of the time of tribulation before Christ's return. It's a seven-year tribulation after the rapture of the church. And the Antichrist from what we know in scripture, which is a study unto itself. In fact, I would recommend A.W. Pink's book. It's excellent, called that, The Antichrist. It's a favorite book of mine on this subject. And this man is the most significant, the Antichrist, not A.W. Pink. This man is the most significant Antichrist, uh, most significant evil individual who appears on the scene. He is essentially Satan's substitute, Messiah, He's a man of great ability and he's empowered by Satan. And so, when everything in the Middle East rises to its highest levels of chaos and and the governments are unable to solve anything, there's a man, and Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, who will step on the scene as the ultimate peace broker in the midst of international chaos. He's a false Messiah. And the Bible calls him by many names, the Antichrist, uh, the beast. Daniel calls him the little horn for the one who speaks arrogant and pompous things. He's also called the son of perdition. And from what we know, he is likely the ruler of a nation, one powerful nation that's strong enough to offer the security promised to Israel. He's going to be political. He's probably going to be attractive, charismatic, and, and he will have wisdom in that moment that others do not, And it will appear to solve the problem and bring peace. Now, you hear something like that, and you might say, this doesn't seem possible for an individual like that, like this, to emerge. But I want you to realize that it was only 80 years ago that a prototype named Hitler quickly rose to power and turned a first century world nation, with many in that nation who had identified as Christians, into a Jewish killing machine and conquered all continental Europe. And think about this. He did it without our tech. He did it without our transportation. He did it without social media. Can you fathom how easy he could delude with social media today? We see it already. Something else to think about. The Antichrist. You realize that Satan is preparing an Antichrist for every generation. Satan is not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. He does not know the timing of the next event. It's an unsigned event. The rapture could come at any moment. And therefore, in every generation, the Antichrist is being prepared by Satan, in every generation there, because Satan just doesn't know. Again, many, many roads we could travel down this morning, but our focus is Israel, Israelology. Okay, so when the tribulation begins, Israel's back on their land. Again, as Leon read for us this morning from Ezekiel 36. And during the first half of the tribulation, Israel will be living in this sort of peace and safety because of this covenant. But that's going to all change. That will all change when the treaty with the Antichrist, who has secured this peace, he actually breaks it. And at the middle point of, the, of this tribulation, the Antichrist will end true worship in Israel and substitute an idol of himself in the temple. In essence, he's going to declare himself to be God, which is known in Scripture as the abomination of desolation. And it thus begins the second half of the tribulation period. And you will see from time to time that the second half of that tribulation period is nicknamed, it's called the Great Tribulation the great tribulation. Scripture leaves no doubt that the second half of the tribulation period will be a terrible time of persecution for Israel. Those last three and a half years, those 1,260 days, they are horrid. Arguably the worst time in hum- human history to live on fallen planet earth. So much so that in Matthew 24, Matthew twenty-four twenty-two states this, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Yes, it's during this time that God's great purpose of redeeming the nation of Israel is going to take place. to you turn to Revelation chapter 7? Chapter 7. Chapter 7 reveals that vast, Numbers of people will be saved at that time, saved during the tribulation, with most of them being martyred for their faith, and you can read about that in verses 9 through 14. But what I want you to also see is the remnant of Jews that God is going to use to spread the gospel throughout the world. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, sealed for service. And how many? It says here, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, there's a MacArthur Study Bible note on this verse that's excellent. And kind of just a a sidetrack here for a moment. At this point, uh, the MacArthur Study Bible, everyone should have a copy of the MacArthur Study Bible somewhere in their home, in your lap. You should have it. The notes are so helpful in so many ways. And I do want to encourage you to to get one if you don't have one. And this is a great example of this. So you can hit the bookstore and have Bruce and Matthew and Gloria do a show and tell with you. But this MacArthur Study Bible note reads this, okay? A missionary core of redeemed Jews who are instrumental in the salvation of many Jews and Gentiles during the tribulation. They will be the first fruits of a new redeemed Israel. Finally, Israel will be the witness she refused to be in the Old Testament. And to make it even more clear, in verses 5 through 8, you see that the 12 tribes are listed with the statement that 12,000 are chosen from each. There's an emphasis here. The emphasis is on the Jewishness of the 144,000. This is not a, a reference to Gentiles, or even the church militant, as some would assert. God's purpose here is to break the will of holy people in order to bring about a national regeneration. Now, remember, persecution is going to be at an all-time high, and the the rebels among the Jewish people are going to be pruned. They're going to be purged out by what is known as the trumpet and bowl judgments. That's chapter 8, all the way through chapter 16. God will redeem his nation and all of Israel will be saved. And at the end of this tribulation, Israel's persecution during Satan's campaign, it's described in 1614 as a war, as a war. And it's really a series of conflicts that culminate with the Jewish leaders asking Jesus to come back, which brings us to number two here. Israel's visitation by the Messiah. Israel's visitation by the Messiah. We rightly call this the second coming, but let me speak to the importance of this event from more of a Jewish biblical perspective here. You know, the rapture of the church has no preconditions. It can come at any moment. It's an unsigned event. But his second coming does have a single a major precondition that must be met before Christ returns as king to establish his his rule, his his reign over in the messianic millennial kingdom. And it is this. This is the precondition. Israel must confess her national sin. She must, in essence, repent and plead for him to return seeking forgiveness. And you might say, where do you get this? Well, there are many passages in the Old Testament that state this. You can go as far back, if you're taking notes, as Leviticus 26 and see this, as well as Jeremiah 3 and Hosea 5. But I just want you to listen to two that are found in Zechariah this morning. Just listen to this. Zechariah 12, 10, another prophetic passage. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. This is in Zechariah as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then Zechariah thirteen nine continues. And I will bring the third part. That's the elect. Remember, we said two-thirds of the Jews are going to be removed, the unbelieving, and what will remain is the remnant, the third part. I will bring them through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is. Is my God. And so here he comes. Look at chapter 19. Look at chapter 19. Beginning in verse 11, it reads, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. You know, a white horse was ridden by victorious Roman. Uh, generals uh, in, in victory they would ride those and he who sat on it is called faithful and true he is faithful because he's faithful to his promises and what he speaks is always true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on them which no one knows except himself he is clothed with a robe, dripped in blood. This is the blood of his slaughtered enemies. And his name is called the word of God. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Oh, I want to go down this rabbit trail and explain this. This is us behind him. We're marching behind him. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. You want to get someone's attention? That is the most prominent place to make an important announcement. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, mid heaven, come. Assemble for the great supper of God, verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. There's the ultimate indignity, small and great, especially for proud kings and, and mighty military warriors. It won't matter, small and great. And, you know, Ezekiel 39 says that it will take seven months to bury the corpses, even after the birds have gorged themselves. 1919, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. By the way, that's the first mention of the lake of fire in Scripture. And verse 21 here, the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus reclaims the world for God by defeating the enemies of God. The tribulation, it ends with the second coming of Christ in power and glory. Luke 21 verses 27 and 28 state it this way. The son of man will be coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, he tells them, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He is telling them, don't be motivated by fear. The devil is not the God of this world for long. Here comes your Messiah. And so we see, third here, Israel's acceptance of the Messiah. Israel's acceptance of the Messiah. Not the rejection of the Messiah. Remember that from last week? That's not what we're looking at. This is the future. But this time, the acceptance of Messiah. Him. And it is this acceptance that then ushers in the millennial kingdom. God's kingdom is linked with Israel's acceptance of the Messiah. Jesus, who's the seed of David, from the root of Jesse, he's in resurrected form with nail scars in his hands. He will now assume his Davidic kingdom reign over the earth for a thousand years. And it's here that Jesus receives the universal recognition and honor in the, in the realm where he was first rejected. I mean, you remember uh, Paul's declaration in, in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, where he states that all Israel will be saved? Well, here it is. Here it is. As surely as he's cutting off unbelieving Israel from the olive tree, just as surely he will graft believing Israel. Israel back in. This is a nation that will be completely restored and completely saved for all eternity. For all eternity, God's control over the past, the the present, and the future, it's irrefutable evidence of his sovereignty, his providential care for Israel, that that he will keep all of his unconditional promises, the promises of the Abrahamic, uh covenant the the land promise the davidic the new covenants everything that we looked at last sunday they're all fulfilled in the millennial kingdom ultimately one of the greatest purposes of that kingdom is fulfilling those promises that were made to israel by god last passage here look with me at revelation 21 chapter 21 Again, I'd refer you to that previous message on the millennial kingdom for a lot of the details involving the thousand-year reign, which is mentioned in chapter 20 there, but I want you to look at 21, chapter 21. When the eternal state is ushered in at the end of this 1,000-year reign, when there is a new heavens and a new earth, a recreation, including full, unhindered fellowship with the living God... Revelation 21 verses 10 to 14 still, still emphasizes the continuing relevance of the tribes of Israel in God's plan. Look beginning in verse 10. It says, He carried me away in the spirit. This is John writing to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming out, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, Her brilliance was like a a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates and, and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. You see that. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So do you see the significance of this passage? In the eternal state, in the eternal city, national Israel is recognized, even distinguished from the church's 12 apostles of the Lamb. God so loved Israel that its identity is still maintained for all eternity. For all eternity. Which brings us to our final point this morning. Our prayer for Israel. Our prayer for Israel. Last Sunday we ended with our responsibility to Israel. This morning I'd like to close with what it means to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, Among believers, this is a phrase that is used often, especially in trying times for Israel, as we see happening right now. And I would say in some ways, extremely biblically accurate when it's used. In some ways, a little sloppy. And so I want to just take a moment to lay out really what it means when we say we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, we get that phrase from Psalm 122, verse 6, 122, 6, which says just that, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, may they prosper who love you. And let me say first, setting aside that for a moment, we should be generally praying for Israel. I think we get that. Israel is our, our best ally in the Middle East. The United States and Israel share a long history with the U.S. being one of the first to recognize Israel in 1948. Uh, since Israel's founding as a nation, she has, uh, she's been supported by the U.S. And the Jewish people have proven to be loyal allies and, and valuable friends in the Middle East. Our prayers for Israel are to keep this alliance strong. That's important. Furthermore, there is a, a, a battle between good and evil. You know this. You see this. I mean, if you want to define or, or describe the depravity of mankind... All you have to see are the atrocities that have occurred in in just the past two months over there in the Middle East against the Jews. But specifically, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, this means praying for the Jewish people to finally embrace their Messiah. Until then, they will feel his loving and chastening hand heavy upon them. This is a, when we pray for the the peace of Jerusalem, this is a gospel prayer. That's what it it is. It is praying the gospel. It is praying that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. They'd repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ alone. A nation in rejection of their Messiah. There can be no true peace in Israel until it submits to the prince of peace. And so it's a longing for his return. It's recognizing that not the rapture, Right? Certainly not the tribulation, but the second coming is that point that we're praying for, that longing for his return when the true peace of Jerusalem will begin. We're stating when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem that God's not done with Israel. He's not done with Israel. And so when we pray for Israel, we do so generally, and we also do so with his promises in mind. So let's do that right now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray this morning for Israel. We pray for a nation and a people that have not enjoyed the fullness of your blessing. They can at this time in your appointed history because they have rejected your son. But we, we believe by faith that you are not done with them. We pray for this nation as they uh, face such evil today and we pray for their protection and, and that out of this testing, these trying times, as your word tells us, that there would be, will be indeed a, a faithful uh, remnant. That we pray for your providential care of this people, your chosen people. Father, we love your people, the Jewish people. And so we pray that in such a time as this that the gospel would permeate their hearts that they would only by your matchless grace turn into a people a nation that is your light to the nations we pray for the peace of jerusalem true peace and protection lord for their repentance for your return For your rightful reign on the throne of David. Oh, what a day that's going to be. And may our response to the unbiblical idea that the nation of Israel is no longer, no longer has a a place in God's plan. May it be that of the Apostle Paul who declared, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. May it never be. Because you keep your promises. And that, that is our blessed assurance. This, this is what we will sing this morning in a moment in here. It is our blessed assurance. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.